This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Well, after 16 months of no progress towards her confirmation and hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars in lobbying spent against her, Biden's FCC nominee, Gigi Sohn, has announced that she is withdrawing her nomination. This means that for the foreseeable future, the FCC will remain deadlocked and net neutrality will not be restored anytime soon. The Washington Post explains Gigi Sohn, a longtime public interest advocate and former Democratic FCC official who was first nominated by the White House in October of 2021, said her decision to withdraw follows unrelenting, dishonest and cruel attacks seeded by cable and media industry lobbyists. The opposition to Sohn catapulted the relatively low profile position to the center of an unprecedented fight which involved three Senate confirmation hearings, a series of ads, and a billboard criticizing Sohn as extreme and partisan amid dissection of her social media posts. It is a sad day for our country and our democracy when dominant industries with assistance from unlimited dark money get to choose their regulators, Sohn said in a statement shared exclusively with the Washington Post. And with the help of their friends in the Senate, the powerful cable and media companies have done just that. And she is absolutely correct about this. The question is, why after six months give up? You've put up with the partisan attacks for all this time. Why quit now? Well, for those of you unaware, she had her third confirmation hearing a couple of weeks ago. And one senator finally made his position clear. He's going to be voting against G.D. Sohn, which means that her confirmation is essentially dead. That's why she chose to withdraw. Now, take a guess as to which senator, a Democrat, mind you, chose to kill this confirmation. Of course, it was none other than Joe Manchin. The Washington Post continues, shortly before Sohn announced her decision to withdraw, Senator Joe Manchin dealt a critical blow, announcing he would vote against her, accusing her of holding partisan alliances with far-left groups. That's such bullshit. Especially now, the FCC must remain above the toxic partisanship that Americans are sick and tired of, and Ms. Sohn has clearly shown she is not the person to do that, Manchin said in a statement. Now, the irony is that she was the individual subjected to cruel partisan attacks. But yet, Manchin is flipping it and saying she's the one who's the partisan. Now, regardless of the excuse that Manchin uses, this is the result of intense lobbying. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, spent specifically against GD Zone. And do you want to know who one of their primary targets were? Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Let's look at some of the lobbying against Gigi Sohn. Former Democratic senator turned lobbyist Heidi Heitkamp's nonprofit spent $250,000 on a social media campaign targeting three senators, one of them being Joe Manchin. Politico reported in April of last year that West Virginia was a main target of anti-Sohn lobbying ahead of the midterm elections. The American Accountability Foundation, a lobbying group, spent $229,000 attacking Gigi Sohn and telecom giants 
overall spent a record-breaking $117 million in 2022, with Comcast, one of the biggest opponents to net neutrality, which GG Zone supports, spending $14 million alone on lobbying. And to just say that a lot of money was spent against Sony lobbying doesn't give you the full story. Telecom giants used lobbyists to plant stories with the media to purposefully smear her. For example, as Common Dreams explains, in addition to one country project's efforts, this is Heidkamp's group, by the way, and the League of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC, which has long partnered with AT&T, also a photo net neutrality, by the way, published an op-ed in the Arizona Daily Star earlier this month, accusing Sone of having a deeply problematic track record on media diversity issues. That was last year, but this year in February, the Los Angeles Times reported about a coordinated smear campaign astroturfed by, you guessed it, lobbyists back in late January. Quote, in their attacks, all published on January 26th and 27th, Fox News, Breitbart, and the Daily Mail used almost identical headlines stating that Sone sits on the board of EFF. All tried to link her with Danielle Blunt, a professional dominatrix who has been in the forefront of organized opposition to FOSTA and SESTA and support for the rights of sex workers and who received an award from EFF in 2020 for her efforts to fight online censorship. And to give you a little bit more context, because Gigi Sohn sits on the board of EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and they gave an award to a dominatrix who was against FOSTA and SESTA, because this is an online privacy and online rights group, well, they tried to accuse her of supporting human trafficking. And they say that because that was the rationale behind FOSTA and SESTA. So we're not going to get into that story. I did a video on this last month, I want to say. It's really complex. But essentially, this was a homophobic smear attack on GG Zone. So all of this was done. A coordinated smear campaign, hundreds of thousands of dollars in lobbying, all to stop one FCC commissioner. And it paid off because they got exactly what they wanted. Now, in her letter to Biden announcing that she's withdrawing her nomination, she correctly and very bluntly explained what this means for consumers. Quote, unfortunately, the American people are the real losers here. The FCC deadlock, now over two years long, will remain so for a long time. As someone who has advocated for my entire career for affordable, accessible broadband for every American, it is ironic that the 2-2 FCC will remain sidelined at the most consequential opportunity for broadband in our lifetimes. This means that your broadband will be more expensive for lack of competition, minority and underrepresented voices will be marginalized, and your private information will continue to be used and sold at the whim of your broadband provider. It means that the FCC will not have a majority to adopt strong rules which ensure that everyone has non-discriminatory access to broadband regardless of who they are or where they live, and that low-income students will continue to be forced to do their schoolwork sitting outside of Taco Bell because universal service funds can't be used for broadband broadband in their homes. And it means that many rural Americans will continue the long wait for broadband because the FCC can't fix its universal service programs. And she is absolutely correct. This is not just sour grapes. She's one commissioner of an entire agency that would have given them the majority that they needed to undo Ajit Pai's harmful legacy and implement new regulations so that way your internet service provider can't sell your data to online marketing companies. It's just, this was a pro-consumer person, but the telecom agency 
planted stories in the media covertly to smear her as some sort of an SJW or authoritarian who hates Fox News. And it worked because in response to um, news that she'd be withdrawing, if you look to the Twitter replies to Washington Post sharing this article, there's a lot of conservatives that are bizarrely celebrating and misgendering Gigi Stone, for example, here's a couple of them. Good, he is too leftist, and I wish him luck. I mean, these, these are normal Republicans who are buying the bullshit from propagandists. So congratulations, idiots. You'll continue to pay more for broadband since there are monopolies everywhere. You will continue to be forced to have your internet service provider sell your data, but at least the uh, woke Gigi Stone was defeated. I mean, this shows you how powerful propaganda is and how effective lobbyists are at what they do. So there you have it. The dream of restoring net neutrality is probably dead. I can't imagine that the Senate will confirm any nomination that Biden puts forward unless they're going to be a complete plant for the telecom industry. Because when you try to put forward somebody who is genuinely progressive, who is looking out for the consumer and wanting to protect them from these predatory companies, well, that's what happens. Lots of money is spent lobbying against them. So who's Biden going to nominate next? At this point in time, they haven't announced who they're going to choose. But if there's somebody who's actually good, odds are the lobbying campaign isn't going to let up anytime soon. And I guarantee you, that just normal people are going to fall for it because when you have so much money being spent to brainwash people, well, it works, unfortunately. The Supreme Court is looking at Biden's giveaway to people who own... Who giveaway is your term, not my term. Well, we are... They have college debt. Loan. Yeah. Okay, and we're going to give them money. Are we're we going to forgive debt. Well, we're... <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're arguing about the same thing, but there was no argument. We're giving the money away. Okay, so I just want to read you this. And again, this is against why people sometimes, I think, question some of what you're saying. Uh, this is a survey, student loan forgiveness recipients. 73% of applicants say they are likely to spend their extra money on non-essential, including vacations, smartphone, drugs, and alcohol. They, they admitted that to the pollster. Now, who is this pollster? I, NBC... <laughs> NBC News, 52% um, they are very likely or likely to buy new clothing, 46% they would use the money for vacation and eat out at restaurants. This is why people have a thing about, I, I would never call it free money, oh I guess I just did, but. Um. You just watched Bill Maher set up a question to Senator Bernie Sanders about student debt in a way that is so biased, he's almost giving Fox News a run for their money. The only thing missing was animated dollar signs falling from the sky and a Chiron asking who's going to pay for it. But Bill Maher has made it abundantly clear again and again that he is against student debt forgiveness. And we'll get to Bernie Sanders' response to that question he asked here in a moment. But I first want to address Bill Maher's framing. So there's a plethora of reputable polls Bill could have cited to demonstrate how student loans actually affect younger generations. Most of them show that it affects them negatively. He could have cited this morning consult poll finding three-fifths of millennials can't buy a home because of student debt, or this poll showing how a quarter of millennials are moving back in with their parents after college in order to afford their student loan repayments. But instead, he chose to cite a poll that plays into this caricature of student loan borrowers in order to get his audience to believe that we're irresponsible and make bad financial decisions. And the poll that Bill Maher referenced was not conducted by NBC News, 
NBC News wrote an article about the poll, yes, but they didn't actually conduct or commission the poll. The poll that he cited was commissioned by a company called Intelligent with very suspicious framing. For example, look at the biased framing of this one finding here in particular. Quote, four in 10 say student loans haven't negatively affected their lives, which downplays the 60% of respondents from the same poll who say that student loans have affected them either somewhat negatively or very negatively. You wouldn't spin the results this way unless you were trying to diminish the importance of student debt forgiveness. Not to mention, Intelligent commissioned this poll from a company called Pollfish, which is powered by a marketing research company called Protege. And Pollfish is a polling company that uses AI to gauge consumer habits, not socially scientific insight from voters. 538 doesn't even include them in their pollster grading, presumably because an AI-generated poll obviously does not constitute actually reliable social science research. But let's assume that the poll was 100% accurate. 87% of Biden's student debt relief goes to people making less than $75,000 per year. We're talking about working class people. So if the weight of student debt being lifted off of their shoulders actually did lead to some of them choosing to go on vacation or go out to eat, is it really that bad? I mean, previous generations were able to enjoy their post-college years by taking vacations and buying non-essential items, but millennials and Zoomers are villains if they do the same? Are they supposed to be miserable and live frugally forever in order to garner sympathy from multimillionaires like Bill Maher, who probably graduated with almost no college debt? I mean, it's unreasonable here. But the bias there is evident. Bill Maher wants you to think that People don't deserve student debt forgiveness, and any way that he can lend further evidence to that claim is what he's going to do. But I don't want to bury the lead here because Bernie Sanders' response was excellent. However, this framing is important to address because it shows you how much of an out-of-touch elitist Bill Maher has become. But as biased as he is against young people, Bernie Sanders' response that you're about to see was so compelling, he actually got Bill Maher to agree with him and disarm. Under Trump, the Congress voted for a trillion dollars in tax breaks for the richest people in this money, in this country, and the largest corporations. That's a giveaway. We yeah. just increased military spending with very little discussion, I don't know if you know this, by $80 billion. Military industrial complex. Including the Democrats. Pardon they, me? The Democrats vote for it too. Yes, absolutely correct. Absolutely yeah. right. All right. But that's socialism, the military. That's crony socialism. Well, that's. Right? crony capitalism. But, but the but, military uh, isn't capitalism, that's, that's the government. No, but it's who owns the military industrial complexes. All right, but anyhow, right. all right. So when you talk about giveaways, you have major corporations in this country that make billions in profit, don't pay a nickel in taxes. Billionaires have an effective tax rate lower than that of a truck driver or a nurse. You have a generation, you talk about this younger generation right now. I got around the country and I talked to a lot of people. You know, I don't know anything about that poll, but I can tell you, I've talked to nurses who are working their asses off, doing the right thing. They leave school $70,000 that they can't afford now to get married and have children. They can't afford the housing that they desperately need. So the truth is you've got a generation that everything being equal, the younger generation will have a lower standard of living than their parents. You and I, and I'm a little older than you, can remember 50 years ago, what did it cost to go to the University of California? Remember? 50 bucks. 50, yeah. 500. Virtually free. City yeah. University of New York. Right. Virtually free. And right well, now, these young people are leaving school deeply in debt. They're struggling economically. They deserve a break. <laughs> it, 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Believe it or not, that's it. Bill Maher moved on after conceding his entire argument to Bernie Sanders. And presumably all it took was three seconds of self-reflection spurred by Bernie Sanders just giving a basic response. Unreal. Bernie Sanders asked him, how much did it cost you to go to the University of California? And Bill Maher responded by saying 50 bucks. Now, I'm sure that he was being sarcastic by saying 50 bucks. I don't imagine it actually cost 50 bucks, but... The point is that it was much, much more affordable. People in his generation got to graduate with little to no debt. But as biased as Bill Maher may be, he can't claim that that's a fair system. No one who's intellectually honest can. His generation got to graduate with almost no debt when a college degree wasn't even as essential back then. But my generation gets bogged down by debt for the rest of our lives for a degree that we need in order to increase the chances that we land a good paying job. And we're somehow villains for getting our debt canceled. That whole line of thinking is just bizarre and unacceptable to me. I mean, how dare people like Bill Maher complain about us getting a small portion of our student debt canceled when he got basically college by getting a minimum wage job. I mean, I've, I've heard from my professors who say they paid off their student debt within a year or two, graduate level student debt within a year or two by getting a job at a fast food restaurant. I mean, the outrage is not that people today are getting their student debt relieved minimally. The outrage is the fact that student debt is a thing in the first place in the richest country on the planet. Now, Bill Maher also called the military spending crony socialism, but was corrected by Bernie Sanders, who rightfully explained that the military industrial complex is composed of private companies who bribe politicians with campaign contributions to get lucrative government contracts. That's capitalism right there in its purest form. So to the extent that that is socialism, it's socialism for corporations and rugged individualism for the rest of us. But what was the point Bill Maher was even trying to make there that government spending is always bad? I mean, the point is that government spending is good if it benefits working people. You can't just say that government spending is always bad because I feel like that's too broad of a statement. But I mean, what Bernie Sanders pointed out there was correct. Nobody asks questions when the government spends on tax cuts for the rich or provides these subsidies to large multinational corporations. But the second the peasants get crumbs, that's when everyone is up in arms and outraged. But to give Bill Maher a little bit of credit, as far gone as he is, there's presumably still a small voice of reason within him. And it's small, but it's there. And it's enough to at least make him temporarily open-minded enough to see the flaws in his own arguments, which is good. I'll give him credit for that. But all it took was someone like Bernie Sanders penetrating that bubble that he created for himself. The problem is that the more that Bill Maher isolates himself from actual lefties and working class people, the more out of touch he will continue to be. Either way, I sincerely hope that this interview with Bernie Sanders got him to reevaluate his worldview, but it's Bill Maher, so um, I'm not gonna hold my breath there because he is a hack. But if you agree with me that Bill Maher has become insufferable, hit the like button and don't forget to subscribe to help us reach our goal of 400,000 subscribers. We'll leave that there. Is the president uh, annoyed, frustrated uh, with Marianne Williamson for jumping in the race ahead of him? Did he want a clear field to run uh, against the Republican nominee in 2024? Just not tracking that. I mean, if I had a, a uh, what is it called, a little a little globe here, Bristol wall. Bristol wall, then I can tell you. But I, I <laughs> imagine eight ball, whatever. If I can feel her aura, I, I just I just don't have anything. I just don't have anything to share on that. I'm, 
Oh, gosh, you guys are making me laugh now. There's nothing like a good old-fashioned Democratic Party primary to remind you how smug and condescending liberal elites within the Democratic Party establishment are. That's how Biden's press secretary reacted to news that Biden has a primary opponent, Marianne Williamson, who announced just over the weekend. But here's how you answer that question if you don't want to make it sound like you hate democracy. Actually, no, the president is not annoyed or frustrated that the field isn't cleared for him because we believe in democracy unlike the Republicans, and Marianne Williamson absolutely has the right to run, and I wholeheartedly welcome her and anyone else's participation in the democratic process because not only am I confident that the Democratic Party's primary voters will renominate the president again, but our administration's commitment to democracy is unwavering unwavering. So no, we're not annoyed or frustrated that Marianne Williamson is announcing that she's running for president. I mean, she could have said that, but instead she chose to smugly dismiss Marianne Williamson as some sort of a kook, which isn't just mean-spirited, it's a mischaracterization of Marianne Williamson. And I get that nobody really took Marianne Williamson seriously when she emerged on the national scene back in 2019, myself included. But it's not 2019 anymore. The more she talked, the more that she convinced me and others that she's not some fringe character worthy of mockery. She's a thoughtful person who's talking about issues that most politicians never address. She's calling out corrupt institutions that make politicians beholden to their corporate donors. She's objective and gives Biden credit when he's right, but condemns him when he's wrong. And she's constantly stood up for disadvantaged and marginalized people again and again, regardless if it's politically expedient for her to do so. In a Substack op-ed she wrote about her experience with the UK's socialized healthcare system, she eloquently points out, quote, we can either base our economy on the short-term profits of huge corporate entities, or we can can base our economy on an effort to increase the health and well-being of our people and planet. We can't do both. The former is an economic model that serves a few, ensuring that a majority of people will be made to sacrifice to shore up the piles of goodies being enjoyed by a small number of us. The latter is an economic model that serves the many, ensuring that a majority of people have a chance to get into the game, create their own wealth, and contribute to an economy that serves everyone. So she took her experience with the UK's healthcare system, and that made her realize why it's so important to decommodify healthcare. But then she extrapolated beyond that and acknowledged how other industries also prioritize profits over people. And in this next paragraph we're going to read here, she explains beautifully why it is that politicians refuse to change this barbaric system. She writes, gee, you wouldn't think that would be such a hard call, referring to the system being changed and needing to be changed. And it wouldn't be if our representative democracy actually represented the people. But these days it does not. It represents its corporate donors, the very entities that thrive at the expense of people and planet, putting the needs of an unfettered capitalism before the needs of the American people. Those corporatist forces spend huge amounts of money trying to convince people that standing up for their own good is socialism communism, collectivism, the destruction of America. They don't want people to know, apparently, that there are successful capitalist economies in the world that still provide people what they need in order to thrive. And she's absolutely correct about that. Capitalism is a global phenomenon. It is not unique to the United States. But yet, other capitalist countries have found ways to meet the basic needs of its citizens, while the richest country on earth fails to provide citizens with basic material needs, basic infrastructure. Some areas of the country don't even have access to clean drinking water. 
So for her to address this, address our failures as a country and point directly to the institutions that caused this, that is something that we don't see. And that's why I think it's important to have voices like hers included. So that way, these issues that are oftentimes neglected get talked about. Now, let's listen to her speak about important issues that politicians and media usually don't touch because she goes on and on. And as you can see, she is focused specifically on policy substance. Let's listen. We have 500,000 Americans who go into medical debt every year. We have 68,000 Americans who die every year for lack of health care. We have 85 Americans who are either underinsured or uninsured. We have an $88 billion total medical debt. And I think when you consider the fact um, that that produces so much economic anxiety in so many people's lives. We have 64% of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck, 60% of Americans who who could not absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure. Healthcare alone would take would really take that level of despair and drop it quite a bit. You know what we we all need to realize is exactly what you were saying before about East Palestine. What happened in peace, East Palestine is a feature, it's not a bug of the way the current system works. And it's exactly the corruption, what I was talking about in that article, is exactly the corruption that you and Cenk were talking about over the last few minutes. The deregulation, the fact that for the sake of short-term profits, it's not just the railroad companies, it's the insurance companies, it's big oil, it's the pharmaceutical companies, it's big agricultural companies, it's big chemical companies, it's big food companies, it's a military industrial complex. It's the system itself, it's not just one industry and it's not just one incident. And as as long as you put short-term economic profits before the health and safety and well-being of people and animals and planets, we are going to get more and more East Palestinians. But you know, this is the thing. It's not like one particular institution. You know, slavery was one institution. You got to end it with institutionalized oppression of women. We need suffrage, one institution that needs to be removed. Segregation, one institution. Today, it's more like an atomizer spray. An atomizer spray of injustice. It's the racial inequality in our criminal justice system here. It's infiltration of, of white supremacists into our police there. It is lack of health care over here. It is the fact that people don't have healthy food over there. It is the East Palestinians. It is the it is the economic it is the environmental injustice of it all. It is the fact that we have some such high rates of chronic illness in this country, and of course, the war machine in the United States. So at this point. We need to recognize that the system is so deeply corrupt that the corruption is baked into the cake. And at this point, I don't think the system is going to disrupt itself. I mean, how can anyone listen to that and smugly dismiss her as the kooky crystal lady? She is a thoughtful progressive using her platform to raise the salience of important issues. But Biden's press secretary and the media, they've all just collectively chosen to dismiss her in the most smug, infuriating manner possible. But here's the thing. They don't even need to do that. Any primary challenger to an incumbent president has a near 0% chance of winning even a single primary. Everyone knows this. So why the unnecessary vitriol? That's the question. First of all, I think that it's because they're just genuinely smug, miserable people. And second of all, it's because even if Marianne Williamson politically isn't a threat to Biden in the sense that she can beat him in a Democratic Party primary, her presence alone will unilaterally raise the standards. That's important. I mean, 
do you think that Biden wants to talk about health care when the entire health industry bet on him as their savior for Medicare for all back in 2020? I mean, when was the last time he even vocalized support for a public option? That's what he ran on as the preferable system to Medicare for all. So do you think that Biden wants to talk about these policies? Of course he doesn't, because it makes him look bad. He doesn't want to discuss how his immigration policies are arguably as cruel as Donald Trump's. Having a primary challenger reminds him that there is widespread dissatisfaction within his own party and that encourages him to do better. It raises the standards. That's why there's this smug, condescending dismissal. It's because even if Marianne Williamson will have a very difficult time at beating Joe Biden, if not a near impossible time of beating him, she still is a threat to him in that limited sense. So I, for one, am thankful that Biden is getting a primary challenger. In fact, I'm consistent in my support for democracy and believe that every single incumbent politician, including ones that I agree with, like Bernie Sanders, Ilhan Omar, should all get primary challengers every single cycle and be forced to debate them. I don't have to support those primary challengers, but I think that robust competition matters in democratic societies and people who are small d Democrats should support that. But you see, I'm confident also in the incumbent politicians that I support. I think that they would survive intra-party primaries. So if the Biden administration is confident as well, then what do they have to worry about? Why needlessly attack Marianne Williamson and laugh at her? Especially if you know you're overwhelmingly likely to win anyway. It's because they don't want to be forced to address their own failures. So with that being said, I think it's obvious if you haven't picked up on it by now, I will indeed be voting for Marianne Williamson over Joe Biden in 2024 because I agree with her. And even if the odds are against her, I don't think that we should just automatically coordinate Biden. There's no harm in making him work at least a little bit for that nomination again. But I am curious to know what other leftists think. So be sure to share your thoughts down below and don't forget to give the video a like to help us beat YouTube's algorithm. And of course, if you're not already subscribed, what are you doing? On these issues pertaining to the LGBTQ community, DeSantis really seems to be aiming for that community. How do you take that on? We take that on by number one, being bold in our messaging and calling it out for what it is. He isn't acting on education, we have to be clear. He's acting on scapegoating vulnerable communities due to his failures. He's not talking about how we're going to increase the amount of money per student in classes. He's not talking about ensuring that we raise teacher pay, that we ensure that parents do have a say in the way that their students are being educated outside of this bigotry that he has. He's talking about targeting queer students, targeting LGBTQ plus kids. It's not just the broader community. He's going for the kids. A piece of legislation that was just introduced uh, pretty much would allow the state to seize, to kidnap trans children if they feel like they're at risk of gender affirming care and a lot and a lot of times life-saving health care as well this is what we're up against in florida right now and it's hard to keep track of because it seems like there's a new victim there's a new bill every day but we have to call it for what it is he is abusing his power and using the state to target political uh, uh, uh opponents and political enemies and there's a word for that and it's fascism and we have to be honest about it. It's just a problem for Florida now, sure. But in a few years, it could be a problem for the nation. We need everybody to pay attention and talk about it, how he's targeting trans folks, targeting not just black history, but black people in general, which is American history, and targeting marginalized communities across this entire state. And here's the sad, sad part, Jim. He's doing it because it's pulling high for him in the Republican Party. 
And I think that says a lot about the state of that party right now. You just listened to freshman Congressman Maxwell Frost call it like it is when it comes to the policies coming out of Florida. They are fascistic, plain and simple. I don't know why other politicians refuse to use the F word. Maybe they don't want to come off as being too crass or hyperbolic. Perhaps they're afraid. Either way, you can't sufficiently stop something unless you know what you're dealing with and for other politicians to pretend as if we're just dealing with traditional conservatism or evangelical extremism i think that that's extremely naive it's fascism and you have to call it what it is and it's not unique to the united states or florida fascism has been on the rise around the globe but for us to bury our heads in the sand and pretend as if it isn't what it looks like is I think very, very irresponsible. So I'm glad that Maxwell Frost is one of few Democratic lawmakers who's just saying it, this is fascism. And he knows he is from the state of Florida. And it's so bad that some Republicans who you wouldn't expect to say things like this are coming out and saying, okay, they're going a little bit too far in Florida. Case in point, a Republican state senator proposed a brazenly unconstitutional bill that would literally require bloggers who write about DeSantis or other government officials to register with the state. Yeah, it's a proposal so extreme that even Newt Gingrich, of all people, came out and condemned it, saying via Twitter, the idea that bloggers criticizing a politician should register with the government is insane. It is an embarrassment that it is a Republican state legislator in Florida who introduced a bill to that effect. He should withdraw it immediately. That's where we're at, folks. When Newt King Gingrich, of all people, says the Republican Party is a little bit too extreme here and maybe they should rein it in, that's when you know it's time to sound the alarms. The party has gotten too extreme. And Maxwell Frost provided us with a number of examples there, but there's even more. A bill essentially decriminalizing running over protesters, the don't say gay bill. There's so many instances of Ron DeSantis wielding power in an authoritarian, undemocratic way that violates freedom of speech, civil liberties, that you can't just look at that and say, this is traditional conservatism. I understand the instinct to do that because the entire Republican Party is pretty extreme. But there are elements within the Republican Party that are different from other elements of the Republican Party. Even compared to Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis is much more extreme. And let's just dwell on the one policy that Maxwell Frost proposed because he kind of like he, he glossed over it. And I don't think intentionally so, but you can't just gloss over something like that. So the bill that is being proposed in the Florida State Senate would essentially legalize kidnapping of trans kids or kids who have a parent that's trans. That's not just, oh, wow, these crazy Republicans are at it again. That's, oh, my God, this is fascism territory, and we're in genocidal territory explicitly now. As Insider explains, a proposed bill making its way through the Florida State Senate would allow the state emergency jurisdiction over children who receive or are at risk of receiving gender-affirming care or if their parent receives it themselves. The proposed bill defines sex reassignment prescriptions or procedures as hormone therapy, puberty blockers, and surgeries or procedures that affirm a person's perception of his or her sex if that perception is inconsistent with the person's sex at birth. The court would also be granted jurisdiction to vacate, stay, or 
or modify a child custody determination of a court of another state to protect the child from the risk of being subjected to the provision of sex reassignment prescriptions or procedures according to the proposed bill text. So after hemming and hawing about parental rights, this is what is being proposed in the state of Florida. State-sanctioned kidnapping of trans kids or kids who have trans parents. And they're not just using their power to terrorize any families who seek out medically necessary gender-affirming care for their trans youth. We're not talking about surgeries. We're talking about social transition, puberty blockers, if a doctor deems them appropriate. But they're saying now, yeah, we can just let someone kidnap your kid and that's fine. And also the state of Florida has jurisdiction over these states and their custody claims. This is so far removed from what is acceptable within the bounds of our constitution and democratic societies just in general that every single person should look at this in horror. But the problem is Republicans have gotten so extreme that a lot of people, I think, have become desensitized and they are inclined to dismiss it. But Florida is a unique beast. Florida is not like other states. They are setting the standard for what authoritarianism is promoted. When Florida does it, other states follow suit. It's like they're creative and innovative in ways that they terrorize marginalized people. So, I mean, for anyone to say, well, Maxwell Frost is wrong to characterize this as fascism, they're just naive because as I stated, and I want to make this point very emphatically, we're not dealing with the Republican Party of yesteryear. Again, they've always been demons, but the Republican Party of 2023, specifically the party led by DeSantis, is fascist, explicitly so. So if you were to deny that they're fascists, you'd probably find a couple of Florida Republicans that would take that as an insult because they're wearing their authoritarianism on their sleeve and in true Orwellian fashion, they're gaslighting us about what's actually happening in the state of Florida. So for politicians like Maxwell Frost to call this out, I think that that is really, really important. It's a public service and I'd argue a responsibility of all lawmakers to call fascism out where it exists because certainly fighting these policies is important, right? But if you can't even name it, then you're not equipped to fight or resist these policies. So step number one is admitting there's a problem in the first place. And once you admit there's a problem and you identify the problem, that's when you can propose solutions and ways to stop the rise of fascism in the United States. So I'll leave that there. Maxwell Frost is absolutely correct. Daily Wire investigative reporter Christina Buttons publicly announced her resignation from the company on Tuesday, citing inflammatory attacks against trans people by Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles as the main reason for her departure. But before you give her credit for having a change of heart or being some sort of a trans ally, understand that this disagreement is very narrow in scope and ultimately comes down to civility and strategy. She explains, I was told that the Daily Wire stance was that adults could live their lives however they pleased so long as they kept kids out of it. 
I mean, Ben Shapiro is literally against gay marriage, but okay. There was no clash between safeguarding of children and tolerance for alternative adult lifestyles, even ones that some might regard as unhealthy. It was a message I could get behind. But recent videos and posts have weakened my confidence in their commitment to this message. On Valentine's Day, Matt Walsh did a segment on his show about transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney that has now been viewed by millions. Quote, you are weird and artificial. You are manufactured and lifeless. You are unearthly and eerie. You are like some kind of human deepfake, Walsh said. Everyone who looks at you will see something pitiable and bizarre. Walsh has defended these statements as quote, good strategy because he says they rally the conservative base. He adds that the goal is not to convince the other side, but to defeat, humiliate, and demoralize his opponents. This triggered a race to the bottom with other social media personas one-upping each other to see who can take more extreme stances. Now, let's just pause there. This pivot from concern trolling about trans youth to a full-on war against trans adults is the crux of her disagreement with folks like Matt Walsh and also Michael Knowles, who she does bring up and defends against the media's supposed misrepresentation of his comments at CPAC. And just a bit of a tangent for those of you who missed it, Michael Knowles at CPAC called for the eradication of transgenderism and claims that that's not actually a call for genocide because he's trying to disaggregate transgenderism from transgender people. The problem is that you can't eradicate transgenderism without eradicating transgender people in the same way that you can't eradicate Judaism without eradicating Jewish people. It's inherently genocidal rhetoric, and he's well aware of what he's doing, but she defends him, though disagrees with him, when it comes to the banning of adults from transitioning. The problem is that banning adults from transitioning was literally always the goal of conservatives when it comes to transgender people. I mean, just look back at any civil rights fight in American history. This whole think of the children argument was always used as a justification to delegitimize civil rights movements and ultimately deny them their civil rights. You don't even have to go back that far to find these examples. Think about how conservatives asked, well, what am I going to tell my kids when they find out that two men can get married? I mean, I don't know, but your kids learning that gay people exist isn't a valid reason to deny civil rights to an entire group of people. So these types of arguments in some variation or another are pretty common. And it's bizarre that she doesn't know this as a journalist specifically who reports on trans issues. The eliminationist rhetoric the right has been using against LGBTQ plus people for decades has been the first clue. So I'm sorry, Christina. You're naive to think that the right would stop at children. These are Christo-fascist authoritarians who believe that they have divine authority to subject all of us to the laws of their God. So in their view, the lines that you're drawing are arbitrary. And Christina mentions in the article that she's an atheist. So perhaps she's not familiar with their authoritarian tendencies, but I am. And I can assure you that enhancing freedom for adults is not the core concern of fundamentalist Christians. So her first contention overall is that she doesn't agree with them about banning adults from transitioning. And her second disagreement is about the ways in which figures like Matt Walsh paint all trans people with too broad of a brush. And again, I can't help but think 
think no shit sherlock but let's hear what she says about this in particular in these next couple of paragraphs quote there are transsexuals who are not ideologues who know they cannot literally identify out of their sex and who believe that medical transition is a choice for adults not children to make i count some of them as my friends they are trying to educate the public using their unique position as transsexuals to deflect ad hominem criticism that they are motivated by prejudice or perversion some have also participated in helping to pass legislation to protect women's sports and safeguard children walsh's rhetoric coincided with a sudden deluge of animus toward transsexuals like my friend blair white simply for being transsexual i can only assume that the enthusiasm generated by walsh's hardline position encouraged another colleague of mine michael knowles to make a controversial statement at this year's conservative political action conference cpac she later goes on to argue the political right often rails against identity politics and group labels yet many fail to distinguish between transgender people and transgender activists not all transgender people are transgender activists in fact many especially of the older generation find the extremism of contemporary trans activism appalling yeah because the only way to be a valid trans person in her view apparently is to not be a trans activist how do you not be a trans activist if you're a trans person in the year 2023 when you admit the things that people like Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles are saying is deeply, deeply divisive. They're attacking their civil rights and trying to ban them from transitioning. So as a matter of your existence to maintain that and defend yourself, you have to be an activist in some sort or at a minimum an advocate. So I don't get that contention with some trans people who are activists but she is correct that public figures know that they can grow their audiences by farming negative engagement and saying the most extreme things possible even if a majority of the engagement that they get by doing that is negative it still bolsters their name recognition and shores up support with their core audience so it's a net benefit to them overall so long as they're able to skirt social media bans some are more clever at it than others Steven Crowder is not very good at this, but Matt Walsh somehow has evaded bans. But again, her argument about some trans people being good trans people misses the point entirely. This is someone who is very clearly approaching this issue with no knowledge of queer history whatsoever. So let me break it down. When you're trying to dehumanize an entire group of people on the basis of their identity alone, propping up examples of good trans people is fundamentally antithetical to that goal because it inadvertently primes people to think that if there can be one good trans person, well, maybe there can be two good trans people or more good trans people, or perhaps maybe Maybe most trans people aren't bad after all, actually. See, opening the door to the prospect of, quote, good members of the group you've otherized is a problem for bigots because it breaks the illusion and undermines the demonization narrative that they've been pushing in the first place. So this is why they're unequivocal in their anti-trans beliefs and firmly committed to the vilification and total dehumanization of all trans people, because that's the most potent and reliable way to farm hatred. Propping up examples of good trans people in their view could be a Trojan horse to full acceptance, which is a risk that people like Matt Walsh aren't willing to take. So, of course, when he's demonizing trans people, he paints with the broadest brush possible because that's how he drives home the point that trans people are invalid. A couple more paragraphs, though. 
She concludes writing, I am keenly aware of the distinction between factual reporting and opinion. As a journalist and reporter, I dedicate my days and nights to meticulously surveying data, scouring the primary literature, and choosing the best words to accurately convey the truth. But such painstaking attention to detail is rendered meaningless when the company's flagship entertainers and personalities speak impulsively and deploy divisive rhetoric for entertainment and clicks. This is not a game, and we cannot afford to make these issues overtly part Partisan. The bodies, minds, and lives of children are being permanently damaged, and everyone, not just reporters and journalists, has a duty to approach this issue with the seriousness it demands. In light of these concerns, I can no longer in good faith maintain my employment with the Daily Wire. Now, there's a lot that we didn't get to, and I'm trying to be as charitable as I possibly can to her, but I can't read her entire article on video, so I'll link to it down below if you want to see what she's saying. But I will say this. As much as I vehemently disagree with her about trans children, I do respect her for condemning the divisive rhetoric from the likes of Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles. I think it's the bare minimum that you can do to just be a decent human being. And I do think that she's genuine in her concern for trans youth, but that doesn't change the fact that she's wrong and clearly blinded by the bubble that she lives in. For example, in the second paragraph of her article, she explained how world rocking it was to see so many trusted institutions being misled on the issue of trans youth, which includes academia, the medical establishment, and LGBTQ plus civil rights organizations, among others. But I mean, if all of them are on one side, namely academics, medical experts, and civil rights organizations, and you're on the opposite side, maybe that's a sign that you're the one who's being misled. I mean, think of it this way. If someone with zero expertise in astronomy told you that scientists and astronomers are being misled about the heliocentric nature of our solar system, I think that most reasonable people would suspect that they're the ones being misled, not the experts. So why wouldn't you be introspective and apply that same logic to this issue and assume, okay, if the academics and medical experts are saying one thing, perhaps I'm the one who's in the wrong here. Furthermore, LGBTQ plus civil rights organizations are composed disproportionately of LGBTQ plus people. Don't you think that they'd know best? Are you really going to say that they're all being misled? I mean, to reach your conclusion, you literally have to deny the lived experiences of millions of people. Most LGBTQ plus people, including trans people, will tell you that they knew they were trans at a very young age, including her friend, Blair White. Case in point. When did you feel, if you can remember, when did you feel like something was off? That you um, were supposed to be a girl? Like five. At five? Yeah, I remember being in preschool. Like my, my earliest memories in life were feeling like the only way I can describe is like a very intense misalignment between the way I was perceived and the way I had my self-concept. Um, so I would say five, uh, but obviously I didn't have the words to articulate it at five. Yeah. Now, Blair White will probably tell you that she's against kids transitioning too, despite knowing that kids know their gender identities at very young ages, but I'm assuming that she's being strategically intellectually dishonest in order to get transphobes to accept trans adults at a minimum as a sort of compromise, even if they reject the identities of trans youth. But the pick me strategy never works. Ask Dave Rubin. But to diminish the lived experiences of the overwhelming majority of LGBTQ plus people in general is a position that is based on either cognitive dissonance or ignorance. And if Christina is really as committed to objectivity as she says she is in this article, 
then as a journalist, I would recommend that she spend some time with families who brainwash their kids into gender ideology, get to know them, hear their stories, and you might learn a thing or two because these are just normal families who are trying to do the best for their children. Either way, I do give her credit for denouncing the inflammatory rhetoric. I know that resigning from that position was probably really difficult, and I doubt that other people in her position would be as principled as her, but that doesn't change the fact that she's still wrong. And if she was genuinely in pursuit of the truth and not just confirmation bias, I think she'd learn that civil rights organizations and medical experts and academics aren't being misled on this particular subject. She is. Well, we knew this was coming, but it's officially happening. Republicans are coming after marriage equality. So late last month, eight Republicans in Iowa State House introduced a joint resolution totally banning same-sex marriages, which is an obvious ploy to goad the Supreme Court into re-examining Obergefell v. Hodges. But at this time, it doesn't necessarily seem like that bill is going to pass. However, Republicans in Tennessee have introduced a less aggressive bill that would undermine marriage equality in a more strategic way by letting county clerks reject marriage licenses for same-sex couples, interracial couples, and interfaith couples on religious grounds. Now, that bill actually does have a fairly good chance of passing, and I say this because it already passed Tennessee's state house, and the governor would probably sign it into law, so it looks very bad for marriage equality. Tori Auden of the New Republic explains, according to the bill which passed on Monday night, a person shall not be required to solemnize a marriage if the person has an objection to solemnizing the marriage based on the person's conscience or religious beliefs. Tennessee law already says that religious leaders do not have to officiate weddings they object to. Critics say the new bill goes beyond that and would empower county clerks to refuse to certify marriage licenses, meaning that LGBTQ, interfaith, or interracial couples could be unable to get married at all rather than just needing to find a new officiant for their ceremony. This latest bill was passed alongside another measure that would require drag artists to obtain a permit from the government in order to perform. Both come just days after Governor Bill Lee signed two new laws, one banning drag performances in public and another banning gender-affirming care from minors. Yeah, so very scary times that we're living in. They're not just rolling back the clock on marriage equality, which became legal nationwide back in 2015. They're also trying to undo the Supreme Court's Loving v. Virginia decision, which legalized interracial marriages nationwide all the way back in 1967. Now, I'm assuming that their goal, if we're being charitable here, is just to undermine same-sex marriages specifically. But if interracial marriages become collateral damage as a result of their assault on same-sex couples, I think that that's a price that most of these Republicans are willing to pay. And what's interesting is the wording of this bill would almost certainly trigger a legal challenge because it conflicts with Obergefell v. Hodges and Loving v. Virginia, but somehow technically would be legal under the Respect for Marriage Act. So Auden explains, marriage equality is technically the law of the land thanks to the Respect for Marriage Act, which President Joe Biden signed in December. But Tennessee's bill exploits a major loophole in that law. Critics had long warned that the Respect for Marriage Act did not go far enough. The bill had been amended during the debate process to say that religious organizations do not have to marry same-sex couples, and the law also does not require states to actually issue same-sex marriage licenses. 
Republicans. So remember, the way that Democrats got Republicans to support the Respect for Marriage Act was to include that very loophole, which effectively allows states to discriminate against same-sex couples. And Tennessee is capitalizing on that opportunity with this particular piece of legislation. So if this were to pass, I would expect it to be challenged legally and potentially make its way to the Supreme Court, which puts Obergfell and Loving both on the chopping block, which is horrifying to think about. And if this were to happen, if it were to make it to the Supreme Court, there's a couple of outcomes that could happen. I think that the worst case scenario based on the current makeup of the Supreme Court is that they could just overturn Obergfell and Loving and or declare the Respect for Marriage Act unconstitutional. And that means that states would be allowed to totally ban gay and interracial marriages. Or the Supreme Court could uphold Obergfell and Loving and nothing changes, but I'm not actually that optimistic, so I doubt that that would be the likely outcome. I think that the most likely scenario, in my opinion, is that the court would uphold the Respect for Marriage Act while simultaneously striking down Obergfell and or Loving, which means that states would be allowed to deny licenses to same-sex couples and or interracial couples, but those states would still have to recognize the marriages from other states, even if they are gay or interracial. In other words, if you are a gay or interracial couple who lives in Tennessee, for example, and they refused to give you a marriage license, well, you can go to New York, get married, come back, and then your marriage would legally be recognized by the state of Tennessee, even if they denied you the marriage license in the first place. Now, this is still preferable, obviously, to the pre-Obergfell status quo, but it's still obviously unconstitutional because same-sex, interracial, and interfaith couples, potentially, they have to jump through additional hoops in certain states that straight and non-interracial couples don't have to jump through. It's a brazen violation of the Equal Protection Clause, but this would be permi permissible under the Respect for Marriage Act, and that's what this law is trying to accomplish in Tennessee. But... This is really all nothing more than conjecture at the moment, because the truth is we really don't know what's going to be the outcome. But I think it is reasonable to assume that we're headed down a very dark and dangerous path where more civil rights, more civil liberties could all be stripped away from us. So pay attention to this, because this is what the next big fight the Republicans uh, are gearing up to uh, to do. And uh, this is the next big fight of Republicans, I should say. And um, it's it's horrifying. It's regressive. But it's exactly on brand for Republicans. So buckle up, folks. It's going to be a bumpy ride the next couple of years. I started with nothing, absolutely nothing. In fact, I started below nothing. And I started growing this little plumbing company with six employees to now we have over 300 employees. And back in 2009, you guys tried to unionize me. My guys were making money. They're getting paid more than the union halls were paying their plumbers. Our benefits were better. But because we started bidding jobs that were union jobs and winning those, union pipe fitters decided they were going to come after us. They would show up at my house. They'd be leaning up against my trucks. I'm not afraid of a physical confrontation. In fact, sometimes I look forward to it. <laughs> That's not my problem. But when you're doing that to my employees... And then when, they, when that didn't work, they started picketing our job site, saying, shame on Mullen. Shame on Mullen. For what? For what? Because we were paying higher wages? Because we had better benefits and we wasn't requiring them to pay your guys' absorbent salaries? 
You talk about CEOs that are making all this money. And what do you make, Mr. O'Brien? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, I know what you make because in 2019, your salary was, um, what is this? Hundred and ninety three thousand. I'm sure you've got some pay raises since then. Yeah, when I was a And the average UPS driver, the feeder driver, makes thirty five thousand a year. That's and what do you bring that's to That's inaccurate. Table? Hold on a second. That's inaccurate. State no, facts. I've got it right here. State facts. That's inaccurate. The average UPS feeder driver makes thirty five thousand. If you don't know your facts, then maybe you should oh, I, be I know him because I negotiate the contract. So I say I say one thing to you. What do you bring for that salary? What do I bring? Yeah, what, do you, what, do you, what job have you committed or have you, have you uh, uh, started? What job have you created? One job, other than sucking the paycheck out of some other body, somebody else that you want to say that you're trying to provide because you're forcing them to pay dues? And no, then, we don't force them. Senator, you've asked the you're question. You're out of line. Let right. Actually, I have question. And don't tell me I'm out of line. You are out of line. Don't tell me I'm out of line. Well, you, you, you frame, don't tell me. You I'm frame, you frame, you frame third, the statement you like a tough guy. Because you don't know what you're talking about. You're going to tell me to shut my mouth? Yes, I did. Hold it. Hold it. Tough guy. I'm not afraid of physical Senator, hold it. But don't sit there and tell me I'm out of line. Senator. You made a statement. You asked the question. I didn't ask the question. You did it. You did. I answered question. the question. You asked the question. About how well, it was money rhetorical. You let him answer. It was, rhetor it was a rhetorical let, Well, question. you may think it's rhetorical. It sounded was rhetorical. to me like a question. Let him answer the question. I'm not yielding my time to him. So if you're going to let me keep my time, that's fine. You'll have your time. Let him. You ask Here's a question. question. He has so, a right to answer that. You just watched the first half of a very heated exchange that took place during a hearing convened by Senator Bernie Sanders for the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. The title of that hearing was Defending the Right of Workers to Organize Unions Free from Illegal Corporate Union Busting, which is hilarious because I'm sure that the Republicans in attendance felt very uncomfortable by that, which I love. But as you saw, Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who claims he's not anti-union, which is hilarious, attacked Teamsters Union leader Sean O'Brien as some sort of a leech because it's the union leaders who are the leeches and not the greedy corporate CEOs. But as you saw, O'Brien was not putting up with his bullshit and in the second half, which we're about to watch, well, let's just say that Mark Wayne Mullen's cheeks got clapped by the, by the Teamsters leader when he was confronted about him being a greedy union-busting CEO himself. Let's watch. As far as my salary goes, my salary, if you follow me around, I walk, I actually look at this building. I bet you I work more hours than you do. Twice that's, as many hours. That's impossible. But no, that is, that's true. Sir, you don't secondly, even know what hard work is. Secondly, you want to follow yeah. my schedule? Be, secondly, be, I'll do it in a minute. Secondly, UPS feeder drivers, and you can quote uh, Carol Tomei, who quoted this, they make 93000 on the lower end. Some I of them making 150000 I said feeder drivers. Feeder drivers, tractor trail drivers. Some of them making $150,000 per year. Some of them do. And I don't disagree with that. Most of them make over, most four, of them, actually, you've been there four years. Most of them make over 100000 uh, okay. So reclaiming my time, I go back to the whole fact that, sir, you haven't created a job. We haven't? You haven't been there. You haven't. Sure we have. You haven't. Sure we have. Tell me one job that you created. What are, what are you talking about? Be specific. You're like, an employer? No, we're you not an employer. people? No, but, you know, it's funny. So, no, then, we, we hold create, on. Then, then, we then create opportunity. We create opportunity because we, Sir, hold, that's, that's we not, hold greedy CEOs like yourself not, accountable. You call me a greedy CEO. Oh, yeah, you are. You want to attack my salary, I'll attack yours. You're, what did ahead. you make? What did you make when you owned your company? When I made my company, I kept my salary down at about uh, 50000 a year because I invested every penny into it. Okay. All right. You mean you hid money? 
No, I didn't hide. Oh, oh. hold on a second. Okay, cut. He said that's out of line. You said right, I was out of line. We're even. We're, even. we're not even. We're not even close to being even. You I think know. it's smart? You think you're funny? No, you're you, not. You think you're funny? No, I never said. I, did I smile? You frame. You that frame line? your opening. Hold statement. on, hold on. Let's, let, you frame your opening right. statement, no. saying you're a Senator. Continue, this, uh, this, Senator. Please this continue is your statements. But sir, this is. A, I think. I think it's great that you're doing this because Me too. this shows their behavior on how they try to come in and no, demonize I, I, a shot. No, no it's and they just, say about intimidation, and it's not about intimidation. This, it's they show your behavior. Yeah, stay on the issue, please. The issue is if you're really for the employee. Then why are you against right to work? Why are you against private ballots? Okay. If you're really about the employee, let the employee make the choice. I'm not anti-union, but when you don't want to have a private ballot, that's not intimidating. That's not intimidating. Why wouldn't you want a private ballot? If that is intimidating the employee. If you don't want a right to work state, don't force somebody to make to pay dues to an organization they may not agree with. Just to be clear, that right there was total bullshit from Mark Wayne Mullen. If union members don't pay their dues, then unions can't exist. But that's what these union-busting Republicans want. They want to defang unions so their corporate donors can continue to exploit employees. It's not right to work. It's right to work for less under shittier conditions. But my favorite part of that, of course, was when Sean O'Brien called him out for being a greedy CEO because that is absolutely factual. As the Washington Post reported back in 2014, Mark Wayne Mullen violated house ethics rules by breaking in more than $600,000 from his plumbing company, which far exceeds permissible levels of outside income for members of Congress. And for additional context, Kenny Stansel of Common Dreams explains, asked by O'Brien how much he made from his plumbing business, Mullen claimed, quote, I kept my salary down at about $50,000 a year because I invested every penny into it, which is bullshit. But in 2013, then-Representative Mullen reportedly pocketed more than $600,000 from the companies in violation of House ethics rules and federal laws limiting how much outside income members of Congress are allowed to receive. Although Mullen transferred ownership of the companies to his family, he continued to serve as a board member and chief advertiser while raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So do you understand now how slimy and weaselly Mark Wayne Mullen is? Oh, I only made $50,000 a year. That was my official salary. Yeah, but yet you pocketed hundreds of thousands of dollars by transferring ownership to your family. So you're full of shit and Sean O'Brien saw right through you. Now, not to mention that, Sean O'Brien later tweeted out, For the record, Senator Mullen saw his reported assets balloon from a range of $7.3 million to $29.9 million at the end of 2020 to a range of $31.6 million to $75.6 million. But he's just a small business owner, folks, who doesn't want to see unions intimidate his workers or his small business. He cares about the working class, right? Yeah, not buying it. And in response to this video going viral, people on Twitter quickly pointed out what his response was to Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. He tweeted out, we do not need farmers and ranchers, small business owners and teachers in Oklahoma paying the debts of Ivy League lawyers and doctors across the US. So small business owners shouldn't bear the cost of these elite college graduates who, by the way, make less than $75,000 per year. That's completely unacceptable. They shouldn't be forced to bear that cost. But it's perfectly reasonable that multimillionaires like him 
get his PPP loan forgiven entirely. Because as you recall, the Biden administration responded to that tweet, pointing out Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen had over 1.4 million in PPP loans forgiven. Because it's fine if farmers and ranchers and small business owners and teachers in Oklahoma pay the debt of a powerful U.S. senator worth millions upon millions of dollars, but it's completely unacceptable to cancel a portion of debt for Americans making less than $75,000 per year. They're so disingenuous, but I want to leave you with some lasting words from Sean O'Brien, who responded on Twitter after this exchange went viral, saying, don't let them distract you. Unions create jobs, make work safer, and put more money in workers' pockets. Most importantly, everything we do is to improve the lives of our members. I wonder if some others can say the same about their constituents. Exactly. So, yeah, there's nothing else to say about this. We'll leave that there. Mark Wayne Mullen learned the hard way that if you're going to take a shot at unions, you better not miss. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.